Well, I don't know if you remember, but uh, last weekend there was a significant date. Uh, last Saturday was Ascension Day in the UK, the date in uh, which commemorates in 1947 when George VI died and Queen Elizabeth came, uh, became our Queen. You may have seen some of the press coverage last weekend. Uh, I, I was I was struck by the message that the Queen issued on the the day. It was quite widely publicised. Um, and I was struck by the fact that how she signed off the message. She didn't sign off with, I don't know what she would have signed off with, thanks very much, you know, thanks for all the presents, you know, cheers ears, whatever, I don't know. Uh, but she signed off with the phrase, your servant. Your servant. I don't believe that was just show. I think that Queen Elizabeth genuinely considers her work as being service to her people. Uh, that although she has loads of what the media calls soft power, she doesn't overstep those boundaries. And she works for the good of, of the British people within those boundaries. There is a, a humility about her, even as she is a queen. Well, today we're looking at another queen and her service to her people. I'm not sure whether Queen Esther thought of what she did as service or just as survival. It certainly had a, a humility about it, I think. So we're continuing our series today in the book of Esther, as Ian said. It's book in the, the Old Testament. We've heard how Esther, who is a, a, a Jewish lady, uh, one of God's people, uh, has through a, through a revolting selection process become queen to king xerxes the the king of the persian empire uh, a huge empire uh, centered now on on what would now be iran uh, however a man called haman has been appointed as i suppose we might call it the most senior civil servant in the empire and through his hatred of of the jewish people has been able to persuade king xerxes to sentence all the jewish people to death across the whole of the empire. If you're into Star Wars, think Order 66. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. Uh, but this is where we're coming into the story. This is where we're picking up the story uh, this week in chapter 5. And uh, we're going to compare Esther and Haman. We're going to compare their use of power in the court of King Xerxes under the title of a humble yet powerful identity so if you're taking notes today that's always a good thing if you're taking notes we're going to look at that under three headings uh, esther steps up haman oversteps and the king steps down esther steps up haman oversteps and the king steps down under each one there's going to be three sub points but i don't want to get too complicated at this point so first of all esther steps up here at the beginning of chapter five we see esther stepping into a new identity growing up she's had a, a jewish name and has grown up almost in hiding a young woman who, who's part of a, a conquered people her, her cousin and adopted father has told us to keep her her ethnicity hidden it's estimated that at this point we're, we're looking at perhaps five years. Five years have passed since 
Esther first became queen. And for that time, she's been living a, a double identity almost. Two contradictory elements. A young woman of an enslaved people, yet also pretending to be Persian, or at least not admitting that she isn't. Now, now through providence, she is the queen of a power-crazy emperor, but still hiding in plain sight, so to speak, a double identity. But now, now here in chapter 5, Esther is going to take side. She steps up and chooses to take on a new directory a new identity you notice there she puts on her royal robes puts on so to speak the uniform lots of people have a uniform right in the, in their roles in life in their jobs sometimes that's to prove their identity sometimes it's to remind people of, of who they are and perhaps what they do uh karen jobs in her excellent book on on esther points out that before putting on the robes at this point, before verse 1, Esther's only called queen once in the book. After this, she's called queen 13 times. No more hiding. She's stepping up. She's now, she's had the title queen perhaps by name. Now she's stepping into the actuality. Now she is Queen Esther. The Jewish queen who wields soft political power in the Persian court of her people's enemies. Both truly Jewish and both truly the queen. What a transformation. What an incredible step up. But why, why should she do this? Why should we do this? What was her motivation? What was Esther's motivation? Well, Ben was talking last week. Uh, about the choice Esther ma- Esther's made, the, the undoubted courage it takes, the, the cost of, of her choice, the, the riskiness of it, to plead her people's case before King Xerxes. Was this dutiful obedience to, to Mordecai following his instructions that he, that he gave her at the end of chapter 4? Was it that she felt blackmailed by what he'd said? You know, you're going to get yours one way or the other, you know. Um, Is it just that this is the best available option when she thinks about, well, you know, what's going to happen, the different things that might, how it might come out? Is it a step of faith? Is, Is it all of the above at the same time? Traditionally, Esther's decision is thought about as, a, as you know, a step of faith. In one of the traditional Jewish uh, writings it said that Esther spent the three days that she was fasting meditating on Psalm 22 Psalm 22 that begins verse 1 my God my God why have you forsaken me Jesus gives that real perspective when he dies on the cross but Esther might well have been feeling that at this point just like wow I'm going in there I don't know if my God is with me We don't know every detail of a motivation because the author doesn't record it here. Perhaps he wants us to draw our own conclusions. Perhaps the message is, life is ambiguous. We we do things for a whole host of reasons, not always one. 
sometimes our, our motivations are, are moral and, and upstanding. Some are very self-centered and just being all about us. But whatever it is, it, it's certainly risky. I mean, this guy is unpredictable. If you remember back in chapter one, uh, Vashti, the last queen, has been rejected because she didn't go to the king when he summoned her. Now Esther is going to the king without him summoning her and he's hoping that it's all going to turn out. That's brave. Whatever her motives are, you've got to admire her courage. She's certainly trying to save her people. And, and even if our motives are very mixed up sometimes, and they often are, at least tinged with a certain amount of self-interest, right? Performing good works is always a good way to use power. We can't keep second-guessing ourselves as to what our motives are. Sometimes there's something good to be done, and we need to be the person who's going to do it. And the bravery pays off. The bravery pays off. Esther's strategy gets her a great reaction. When in verse 3... You can see there King Xerxes says, uh, what is your request, even up to half the kingdom? He doesn't mean I'm actually going to give you like half my kingdom if you ask for it. He means I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be generous. What do you want, Queen Esther? And that's a great response, maybe better than she could have hoped for. And at that point, she might have been tempted just to cut to the chase and blurt out, kill Haman. Because he wants to kill my people, and that includes me. So just kill him now, please, if you would. A bit abrupt. Very abrupt. She could have done that. But that would have been, you know, that would have been a, a high-risk strategy. Okay? That would have been high-risk. Remember at this point, th there's a lot of unknowns. Xerxes doesn't know that Esther's Jewish at this point. Neither does Haman, actually. Esther doesn't know whether or not she's got the total favour of the king or whether this is just going to be kind of a, a one-off, what would you like, oh yeah, sure, off you go. Haman doesn't know that Esther is Mordecai's adopted daughter. In fact, neither does the king. And that might be important when we read chapter 6 because of what the king then finds out about, remembers perhaps, find out about Mordecai from earlier with the other plot. Mordecai doesn't know whether, when this actually all un unravels, maybe Esther's going to die and how's it going to go. So there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about there's certainly a certain degree of uncertainty at this point. And so Esther is very wise. She's going to take a roundabout strategy. She's going to play a long game. She's going to play on her knowledge of King Xerxes. So verse 4, she invites him to a party. She invites him to a party. One speaker said there is not a party that was happening at the time that the king did not want to be at. He loved a banquet. 
He loved the party. He's like, come on, get, get Heyman, get a coat, let's go. Party time. She knows that king. She knows how to get his attention. So they're there, they're partying, drinking, mostly drinking. And, and Esther, remember, is at the table with Haman, who she knows wants to kill her people. And if he knew who she was, he would want to kill her. And she has to sit there and play it cool. So she's sitting there, she's playing it cool. And the king asks her again. Verse 6. Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? So she knows it's going well. But she's still not going to blurt it out at this point. She's going to, like a skilled fisherwoman, just reel him in slowly. Reel the fish in slowly so he doesn't get off the hook. I want another party tomorrow, she says. Xerxes is like, <laughs> brilliant. I knew I picked the right woman to be queen. This is fantastic. Another party. Come on. Excellent. Through her strategy, she has manoeuvred the king to the point where she can reveal the plot that, that Haman has and its impact. The king knows the the king knows the rules. He's given it outright. He doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't really understand what's happened. Esther's got to get him to that point where she can show him that truth. She doesn't want to tip Haman off. And she doesn't want the king just to overreact. That's all going to happen in chapter 7. And we're still going to get through chapter 6. So there's plenty of cliffhangers still to come. Esther has stepped up into the authority that King Xerxes has given her as queen. The, the truly terrible competition that, that's put her into, into the role that she now is, the, the way in which she's had to hide her identity, has all been about God arranging for Esther to be in this position in the Persian court with this power at exactly this crucial time. We sometimes call that God's providence. The way in which he arranges apparently what are just day-to-day -day facts, day-to-day -day things, in such a way as to achieve his purchases, his purposes, often on a way, way longer game than Esther is playing, and often without us ever realising. Now Esther has stepped into that role. She's put on those royal robes. She's not seeking to increase her own power or wealth. She's using, she's using the power that she has, but I think she's doing that fairly humbly. I want to suggest to you for the first time, Esther is really flourishing, despite being in what is a difficult place. She's seeking to serve and to save her people. She stepped into the role that God has, has put her there for, that, has, that she has providentially provided for her, and she is 
thriving at this point. So let's compare that to Haman. What's Haman's identity? If Esther's identity is being one of God's people who's been hiding in plain sight in the court of King Xerxes, then what about Haman? Well, as Ian highlighted a couple of weeks ago, Haman's ethnicity also isn't Persian. He, he, his ethnicity goes back to a group of people called the Amalekites, who are now called Agagites. And they're the enemies of the Jews. They're the enemies of God's people. So he's also got this dual awareness going on. But also, he's a senior official, probably the most senior official in the Persian court. He has got everything going for him, right? Or at least he believes he does. So verse 9, we can see it's, it's been a good day. It's been a good day for Haman. He's been to a personal banquet given by the queen. There's only him and the king there and the queen. He's probably made a few decisions. Got a few things done off the to-do list. He is, as it says there, happy and in high spirits when he's going home. And then he sees Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't get up to show him the deference that, that, uh, that uh, Haman uh, believes he, he's entitled to. He doesn't show fear when he passes. And the Agagite identity of Haman kicks in. His pride kicks in. In his heart, he, he really wants people to fear him and show him deference. But he really wants that Jew Mordecai to do that. That one fact, this one person, who's probably not super significant in, in the citadel in Susa at this point, that fills him with rage, with an unreasonable anger. <clears throat> Is that something you've experienced? The day's going well. The day's gone very well, perhaps. Then one minor, pretty unimportant thing happens. And suddenly the day for us is ruined. Despite all the good things that have happened, big things perhaps, one very small thing, just made the whole day just like bomb. Your reactions aren't thoughtful, they aren't considered. You're just like... <clears throat> How many family evenings have been ruined because after a great day at work, the drive home involves somebody cutting you up at a roundabout or breaking too hard in front of you. It doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. And you get home and you're just so grumpy. Haman's identity is as an Agagite and a highly honoured official, someone who has risen to the top and wants everybody to know it, not just to respect him, but to grovel in front of him. That's his identity. But, but after Mordecai ruins his commute home, Haman, Haman gets home. He doesn't really answer the question to uh, his wife, how was your day, honey? He, doesn't, uh, he just doesn't go that. He, he calls his friends in. He gathers everybody together in his house. 
And that's when we find out some more about Haman's motivation. His motivation. He boasts. He boasts not just about his wealth, about his vast wealth. Not just his sons, but his many sons that he has. Not the honours he's received from the king, but the fact that he's honoured above all the other nobles and officials in the Persian Empire. I am the greatest. And then he does the name drop at the end. He says, oh yeah, and by the way, Queen Esther, she invited me to a banquet. It's on, <laughs> you know, it's on my behalf. Obviously you would, wouldn't you? You know, it was just me and the king. We're actually going to have another one tomorrow. <laughs> what, a, what a slime bully. He, he wants the adulation of, of his family and friends. They already know this. They, they know him. They, they, they know what's going on. They, they know he's wealthy. They know he's got a big family. At that time, that's, that's seen as being a real uh, sign of success. They know he's powerful. They know these things. They don't need to remind you again. And yet he does. And, and that seems to be because those are things that perhaps they are seeking. Certainly something that he has sought out. That Haman has sought out. And that's common, right? For, these are things people seek out today. I want to suggest to you they are idols that sometimes people seek out today. For some people, money is their idol. They're only happy if they're getting more money. For some people, it's their family. They want to see their family prosper and grow and be a comfort to them at the expense of everything else. For some, it's power and influence. Can I suggest to you that all those are sort of little sub-idols Damon's big idol, which is himself. Narcissism. He thinks he is so wonderful and that everybody should share that view. Mordecai is it so insulting to Haman because he is insulting Haman's God, which is Haman himself. He has an unshakable pride in himself. And I want to suggest to you that that is a very common idol, even today. The idol of ourselves. So something you might want to think about as an aside is what idol do you have? Uh, many of us have, have idols. An idol is something that we put in the place of God. Something we look to for, for fulfilment. Something we cannot be happy if we don't have. Ask yourself this question. How would you complete this sentence? If only... Dot, 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 I would be happy. Whatever you put in that dot, 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 dot bit, that might be an idol that you have. If only I won the national lottery, I would be happy. Okay? Money might be an idol to you. If only I could get promoted, then I would be happy. Okay? Maybe your career is an idol to you. Etc. 
Man, as another aside at this point, let me just say what a rubbish spouse Haman's wife is and what rubbish friends he has. How do they respond? How do they respond to all, all his boasting? Yes, that's terrible. You should go and murder Mordecai and then have breakfast. That is rubbish, isn't it? I mean, maybe they're scared of him. I don't know. They should be saying to him, get over yourself. Who do you think you are? Okay, one one person doesn't grovel in front of you. Everybody else is. Get out of your high horse. Go talk to Mordecai, perhaps. Find out what the story is. And by the way, when you're going to talk to him on the way, just tell the king to tell everybody to stop groveling to you. He's not doing you any good. Even if Haman could not bring himself to go and talk to Mordecai, he could have given his power, he could have, I don't know, had him arrested or investigated or something, brought in and questioned, perhaps demoted. It's not fair. But he could have made his point without killing the guy. But no, Haman's strategy is to cruelly kill his enemies. Not just to kill them, but kill them with great pain and cruelty. In an extremely gruesome way. Not only that, but in a way where everybody else can see how gruesome it is. So he doesn't only want Mordecai impaled, which is terrible enough, but he wants it done on a 75-foot-tall pole. So everybody can see how gruesome and terrible it is. So everybody can see just how much they should be grovelling in front of Haman. This is part of his pride and his self-worship. I want everyone to know how powerful and terrible I am. Glorify me, 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 me. This isn't, this isn't political necessity to stay in power. This is an unreasonable, unrelenting hatred. His wife's suggestion to impale Mordecai is met with what? Delight. He loves that idea. He thinks it's absolutely delightful. God's providence has given Haman great power and yet he has overstepped that power. He has overstepped that boundary big time. Instead of using it to prosper the king who's given it to him, to to help the people of Persia around him, he's using it to prosper himself, to glorify himself and to help himself. He's used it to commit injustice on the innocent, to conspire, to commit ethnic cleansing, The vast power he has is not enough. He wants to stretch beyond that to grasp more. He oversteps the position that God's providence has put him in. Look at at the two against each other, Haman and Esther. Haman boasts to other people and seeks their adulation. Esther humbly asks others 
to help her with praying and fasting at the end of the previous chapter. Haman worships himself and relies only on himself. Esther worships God and and is acknowledging her, her dependence on God. She says, if I, if I perish, I perish. I'm, I'm depending on you. Haman uses his power to kill an enemy and to wipe out the people of God. Esther wants to save the people of God. Haman's exercise of authority is with uncompromising total belief. That it is going to happen. Esther's authority is exercised hopefully, but but not overconfident in the result. She knows that God is sovereign and is in charge. But what about the king? If Esther steps up to her identity and Haman oversteps his, what about the king? Well, our third point, the king steps down. The king steps down. But not King Xerxes. King Xerxes is pretty much a a bystander in this part of the story. I mean, okay, he's the authority for for, uh, both Esther and Haman. Uh, He's the unpredictable king on the throne here he's the unwitting player in esther's strategy no i want to talk to you about another king this king's identity is both humble and powerful more humble than esther's and more powerful than esther's and his name is jesus he is god he is eternal and has never been created He is just, as we were singing about. He is merciful, as we are singing about. He is holy. He is the king of the universe. And yet, he chose to step down. He chose to step down and to take on a different identity. Become a a humble human. Wow, that was hard. He leaves behind the glories of heaven and becomes a baby on earth, growing up to be a regular guy, a carpenter. And like Esther, he took on this identity to save a people. To save his people. Jesus is both humble and powerful and if you are here and you are a christian then your identity is in this king your identity is in this king part of the humility that jesus has is that he does not hoard and grasp power but instead he shares he he wants to share his identity when when we become christian we have a new identity in Jesus but like Esther we have to step into it we have to step into it we have to stop hiding we have to take on the role that the providence of God has given us he's brought us to the place where we are his followers and now it's time to follow 
like Esther, we, we do not forget or lose our, our ethnicity or, or gender, our appearance, anything like that. But we, we put on new robes like her, Luke 15, Revelation 7. We become a Christian version of the, the ethnicity. We become a Christian version of that gender. We become a Christian version with that appearance. The old has gone, the new has come. We are a new creation, the Bible says. Not floating about with any kind of, uh, without a purpose, but, but a, a purpose that Jesus has given us. Like Esther, we're only going to flourish in this life when we step into that identity. When we take it on. That identity which is characterised in part by humility and in part by the power that the gospel gives us in Jesus. But perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel that if you do follow you will have to change your identity and even lose it. And that's something that scares you. Jesus would not accept me as I am. And yet I, I, I struggle to change. I'm, I'm not good enough. As we sang, we can approach the throne of Jesus boldly. As bold, with more confidence than Esther did here. She doesn't know what the reaction will be of King Xerxes as she approaches his throne. As we approach the throne of Jesus, we know what the reaction will be. The reaction will be, come into the arms of majesty. Come to me and be saved. Despite your sin, come to me and be saved. Yes, you will, you will, well, you will grow and you will be moulded and shaped as you grow into that Identity as a Christian. But it won't, it won't be something that you're unwilling to do. It will be something we'll, we'll, you will joyfully do. And you will flourish as the person you were created to be. But you, but you may say, well, why would I want to do that? I mean, okay, that, I mean, I, I get what you're saying there, perhaps, Ian, but, but why would I want to do that? Fair question. We, because we are motivated by the king. We're motivated by the king. Yes, Esther's motivations are deliberately obscure in this chapter, but Jesus' motivations for stepping down are clear in the Bible. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's Jesus' motivation. Our motivation for becoming a Christian is because of Jesus' great love for us, because he's stepped down. Because he's freely chosen to die in our place. Because he's taken the punishment for our sins. Because through faith we can receive his righteousness. Because he rose from the dead and he stands at the right hand of God the Father. Because he loves us. Because he is true and he's beautiful. Because he loves us. Because he is true and he is beautiful. Because he loves us, because he is true and he is beautiful. And that is our motivation and that is why we come because of all that. We can trust him and we can follow him. He died 
so that we might not only have life but eternal life, a life with him forever which is full of thriving and flourishing because we are his constant care and his constant joy. Jesus died for us so that the promises that God has made about his people and about his church would be fulfilled. The same providence of God that's put Esther where she is, where she needs to be, where God wants her to be in chapter 5 is the one that has laid out for you an identity as a Christian, an identity to step into and to thrive in despite all the difficulties. Having died for us and saved us and giving us a new identity then, the king's strategy is to providentially put us in places where he can work through us to build his kingdom. To build his kingdom here, now. Christians have been given a fantastic resource in our new identity and yet we are to use them with humility. But we are to use them. We are to use the the, uh, power that is ours, the authority that Jesus has given us hopefully we are pretty humble about that because that has come from God it is his providence it's not us but he's also given us the authority he's given us the freedom to explore this identity to explore this place that he's put us to explore the opportunities that he's put in front of us to so to speak fill that space not to overfill it not to overstep like Haman Not to step outside those boundaries, but within those boundaries, to fill them. That is a good thing. That is the humble and yet powerful identity we have. And it's a place where we can thrive and flourish. When we've stepped into that space the providence that God has put before us, then God's purposes are being furthered in the world. When we're filling the space that the providence of God, the providence of God has put before us, then his promises to us are being fulfilled. And we're part of the providence that God is going to use to fulfill his promises to other people. In fact, to all of his people on one level. And like the book of Esther, if you remember, God's name is not mentioned in here at all. Like the book of Esther, that can look to the casual observer very, very ordinary. Very, very matter of fact. But it is the wisdom of God It is the wisdom of God on display in the life of Esther. It is the wisdom of God in our lives. That he is working through providence to fulfill his promises. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Gracious Father, we just pray, Lord, we, we know that our motives are often very mixed, but that you still work in our lives, you will still work through us. We know that sometimes we are, ten, we are tempted, our hearts are turned towards pride, perhaps to idols, And yet you will still, Lord, work through us. Lord, it can sometimes be very hard to understand exactly the position you have put us into to understand what those boundaries are in our lives, what is stepping over. And yet you will work through us. Father, help us to have confidence and faith in that and in you. Help us, Lord, not to, to overthink that in our lives, but on the other hand, tell us not to underthink it and not pay attention to what you are doing. Give us eyes to see how you are working in our lives. Give us eyes to see how you are working in the lives of those around us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would step into that new creation that you have made us. Lord, if, if there's folks here in the room or folks watching online who are not Christian, Lord, we pray that even today they would have the courage to approach the throne of Jesus and to be saved. As the old hymn said, just as they are. Heavenly Father, this stuff can be so ambiguous sometimes, so hard for us. Let us have trust in you. Help us to step up in you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.